Hello and welcome to episode 17 of EV Brief. My name is Jonathan and this is your weekly rundown of electric vehicle and sustainable transport news from Australia and around the world. On today's show, we're lucky to be joined by Jamie Parker, the New South Wales Member of Parliament for Balmain. Uh, Jamie, I know it's a, a busy week for you already, so thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure, thank you. Uh, Jamie, now for those listeners of the podcast who are not based in Australia um, or are perhaps in another state, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role in Parliament? So I'm a member of the New South Wales Parliament, which is one of the states in Australia. Uh, in Australia, we have local government, state government and federal government and local government works on you know, lower scale kind of community issues, but it's a state government that does most of the service delivery. So state governments do all the public transport, education, schools, hospitals, uh, roads, electricity, energy generation, transmission, and the federal government uh, tends to work on the larger scale kind of international issues, defense, um, income support. So I was a member of uh, Leichhardt Council. I was first elected in 1999. I served on that council for 12 years, and then I was elected to the state parliament in 2011 and have subsequently been elected just recently again in 2019. Yes. And I'm from the Greens Party, and obviously the issue of transportation, uh, climate, air quality, all those things are important, and they're things that I've been working on for several years. Um, what, are, what are two of your key priorities for a future transport strategy in Sydney then? Well, we've got a very big issue at the moment because our state government is engaging in one of the largest infrastructure projects of its type in our history, which is a project called West Connects, which is a large scale urban motorway, mostly underground, mostly tunnels, at the cost of around about 16 or 17 billion Australian dollars. Uh, also with it connected to the airport, which will cost around about $2.5 billion as well. So it's a major piece of infrastructure. And our approach is of course, we should be investing in world-class public transport first. Uh, one of the problems we have here in Australia on the edges of the old empire in the old colony is that we're a little bit behind the times when it comes to looking at how we should be managing our transport system. And of course, we recognize that when you build more supply, you induce demand. And we see that with motorways all over the world. The bigger the motorway, the more you encourage people to drive. And my biggest priority and the biggest priority for our city is to try to focus our transport investment in public transport to shift people out of cars and get them into public transport. This project, this West Connects project, basically locks the people in particular Western Sydney into car dependency, into huge tolls, and into um, you know polluting our air. So that's our number one policy. And then at a smaller level, one of the things that I'm focused on is just in our local bus depot, where we have a very significant bus um, uh, infrastructure facility with maintenance and and bus um, uh, driving and so on, is to get that depot moving to electric. Uh, and that to me, we've made some small steps forward in that area, but that's a really important local initiative we're working on. Yeah, I actually visited uh, the Transport Systems Depot a couple of weeks ago, and it was really fantastic to see uh, one of the electric buses uh, sort of charging and getting ready for its route. And you were actually instrumental in campaigning uh, for the trial in Sydney, uh, which kicked off a few weeks ago. Um, what, what feedback have you received so far from constituents? Well, people are a little bit surprised because <laughs> if you've ever sat on a diesel bus, uh, which is the majority of our fleet, 
after a few years, the bus starts to vibrate. And if you sit on the back of a diesel bus, you can really tell you're in it. It's not pleasant, and people is it? No. Have, it's not. And people have been really surprised how quiet and how lacking in vibration the buses are. And what a lot of people don't understand as well is the feedback, the strongest feedback has been from drivers. Drivers really like the bus. The bus has a very nice um, driver's seating position, but the lack of vibration and the kind of takeoff power, the torque, of the bus is something that all of the drivers really appreciate. In terms of uh, the trial here in Sydney, I mean, one of the things that we're frustrated by is these BDY, it's a BDY chassis, but it's uh, the, the, the actual bus uh, out, outfitting has been done in Malaysia. And then in Australia, there's some, you know, final kind of touching up work done. So it looks like a regular Sydney bus. Uh, there's been a lot of trials done around the world on buses. And we think that it's time to be moving to electric, in particular in the inner west. We know that the average kind of kilometres a bus in the inner west does is like 200, 250 kilometres a day, that kind of distance, which is perfect for electric buses. Some of the bus routes, you know, from Kellyville to the city, they're too many kilometres, it requires too much recharging. And because of the way that our buses work in Sydney, the buses come back to depot quite regularly. So there's opportunities for charging a lot during the day. And our buses don't run 24-7, like a London bus runs so, you know, we'll run 18 hours a day. Whereas because our buses don't run so intensely, there's uh, a lot more fit for electric. We've had a lot of electric bus experience because of the airport. You might know that the it's called the EMU Blue uh, long-term uh, parking area. Oh, shuttle is serviced, bus, is that right? Yeah. yeah, it's serviced by electric buses, yes. So... And we've been able to, you know, use the data that that electric bus shuttle has been uh, generating to really promote the fact that electric buses are perfect for the inner city runs in particular. We've got four buses that have been trialled at the moment uh, and more buses will be coming. And that trial, I hope, will really encourage uh, the operator of the bus network uh, when the new fleet renewal comes to really invest in these electric buses. And the key thing is looking at operational costs. We know they're a little bit more expensive to buy, but how will they go in terms of their reliability and obviously the cost of running them? Yeah, fantastic. I actually had a really great conversation with Greg Balkan, who is the head of uh, innovation implementation with Transit Systems, mm. and he was saying that they're collecting so much data mm. now they'll be able to really demonstrate that uh, the costs will be you know, beneficial for their company and also for the taxpayer. They're going to be a lot cheaper to run. And that's one of the really positive things about transit systems as well, because the issue that I've raised is that it's great to have electric buses. There's better pollution results at road level. There's less noise, less vibration. It encourages outdoor dining and it you know, reduces the kind of diesel pollution. But the power is still being generated predominantly by coal. Yes. So one of the things that's a big focus for us is trying to look at renewable ways to generate electricity for these buses. And one of the things that I know the transit system will be investing in and announcing in the short term is solar for the depot in Leichhardt, which is a large depot where they think they'll be able to generate really significant percentage of the electricity for this bus uh, from solar. And it's a great return on the investment. Electricity prices are quite high relative to many places in the world here in New South Wales. And so the cost of generating uh, electricity with their own photovoltaic um, setup actually will deliver a return on investment in probably, you know, four years. 
So it also reduces costs as well and does it in a really environmentally friendly way. And I mean, we've seen the benefits of renewables in the last few weeks. We've seen, um, I think, Queensland and South Australia have had very high amounts of electricity um, generated by renewables and costs have really plummeted, actually. So they're getting to the point where they're actually wind and solar is cheaper than coal and gas. Well, deploying new facilities, new generation facilities, is now uh, very clear. Uh, one of the reasons why there hasn't been new coal-fired power, new coal-fired power stations built is because it's just not competitive, right? And it's not as flexible, <laughs> right? Uh, and so the market really has spoken. Even though our federal government seems keen to throw taxpayers' money uh, in favour of coal-fired power, we know that that's really no longer viable in terms of an investment decision. And in fact, a lot of the uh, owners of coal-fired power are recognising the costs of maintaining and running these facilities uh, is just not justifiable in the long term. Of course, that has big implications for the network in particular. Uh, and one of the things we know is a lot of people are moving to battery and the stability of the network, but also the maintenance of the network is important because as more and more people move off grid and use their own batteries and their own solar panels for electricity generation and supply, it means the cost of running the grid falls on fewer and fewer people. So there is a real challenge in the future about how we maintain the current grid and how solar and wind and well, generally renewables fits into that as it becomes an increasing proportion of the overall mix of energy generation. Right, right. I mean, we could do a whole podcast on um, well, that's on, podcast, on solar yeah. panels and batteries and uh, microgrids, and I think the inner west area would probably be perfect for a, a small-scale uh, power grid. Well, there's also interesting implications for electric vehicles. One of the things is that, you know, when you look at the pattern of development in the inner west, it's a Victorian pattern of development. It's very dense, very different to places like Western Sydney, where you've got 1,000 square metre blocks and double garages, in the inner west, the average block size is maybe 120, 130 square metres. My house is uh, on 147 square metres, and uh, it's quite salubrious, really, for the inner west. Um, and so you don't have car parking. And that's a question about how we actually uh, recharge vehicles uh, that are all parked on the street. And um, that's something that I know local councils are grappling with. The city of Sydney, you may know, have some uh, public... Uh, uh, power facilities yes, for cars, yeah. um, but bon that's something. Yeah, sorry, I was just going to say. I think Bondi Waverley uh, mm, Council right. area have something recently as well. They've set up. That's right, and I think that's a really big challenge, you know, because people talk a lot about recharging facilities on highways and so on, but we also need recharging at home when the vehicles aren't being used, mostly in the evenings. And so that's something if you, you know, go around the world, you go to Paris, for example, you see whole streets lined yes. with EV charging points. And that is something which is an infrastructure question for our city. Uh, and it's also a question if you have a house and you're generating your own electricity and you'd like to recharge your car, but you can't guarantee a park out the front of your house, um, how do you do that? So there's a lot of things that we're grappling with as a state government as well, as the people that are looking at this I know that that's something that in the in this term of government, which goes for four years, one of the things that I'll be pursuing is trying to do trying to develop a blueprint for that. How does that work? How do we work with local councils? How do we work with the state government in terms of developing this infrastructure around the whole state, but also in local communities? One of the problems, of course, is while New South Wales is quite positive, the state government came up with a few million dollars to assist with the development of public uh, charging 
uh, there really is an issue about local individual infrastructure, which needs to be addressed in conjunction with how we manage the whole grid. Yeah, and I mean, New South Wales and Sydney in particular is growing at such an astonishing rate, isn't it, in terms of population? I mean, really, the way forward is uh, multi-unit dwellings, apartments and that sort of thing. But um, there's no sort of firm policy on, say, EV charging infrastructure in apartment buildings yet, is there? Well, that's one of the problems is that, um, well, one of the great challenges about our planning system is that uh, it tends to be run for particular interests, vested interests, rather than the best outcomes. And there's constant resistance to any type of new mandates, whether it's about the solar performance of a building, the general environmental performance, um, or whether it's about mandating bicycle parking or EV charging. Uh, the development industry seems to be implacably opposed to any single step, and they cry that it will increase the cost of uh, any new development. But there does need to be a really important recognition that the future will be EV. You know, there needs to be charging facilities. And that's one of the reasons why just last week in a speech in Parliament I gave, I spoke about basics, which is the name of the kind of standard, the environmental standard, which is applied to dwellings in Sydney and how that needs to be radically overhauled to take into account all of the new um, technologies that are evolving and the new requirements. And EV is, you know, one really important part of that. But what is critical here as well is that while EV will happen, we need to be recognising that public transport will be the key mover of people in the future. Of course. And, yeah. you know, that is getting that balance right it is really important to make sure that we accommodate EV, electric vehicles, but ensure as well that our public transport fleet is also electric, but more importantly, continues to do the heavy lifting. Right. I mean, electric vehicles are nice as personal transport, but realistically in major cities, uh, mass transit is, is the only way forward, isn't it, in efficiently moving mm -hmm. people? <laughs> well, we need to make sure that the vehicles we do have are, you know, sustainable environmentally. And, uh, you know, one of the things that people often don't talk about, they talk about carbon emissions and the, the carbon footprint of a vehicle, but the noise. Noise is a big factor. And we also know, you know, in my community, you've got, a lot of you know relatively small residential streets, but there's outdoor dining. Activating our streets and our communities, we need to actually reduce noise from vehicles. Buses is obviously a major issue, but also individual vehicles. So, you know, the types of targets that our state government have set are totally inadequate globally. They don't hit the mark globally, but also um, they don't meet where the community is at. And we need to be trying to move forward with electric vehicles uh, instead of the state not addressing regulations, which effectively holds them back. In terms of targets, are you talking uh, emissions targets or are you talking electrification targets? Well, I'm talking both. I mean, the federal government has been absolutely remiss in terms of addressing There's no policy, there's standards. no framework, is there yet? No. I mean, New South Wales has released a document, um, Clean Air New South Wales, which is our EPA, uh, our Environmental Protection Authority, about trying to address emissions in New South Wales. Uh, and it is still at a very, very, when you compare it to a global standard, very poor, poor stage. Obviously, we don't have a large diesel vehicle fleet like they do in Europe, which is a lot of the reason behind the high particulate matters, the PM 2.5 in Europe in particular. Um, but, you know, New South Wales is still really lagging behind. You compare it to states like California or, you know, anywhere else. And 
we're in the dark ages here. And I think I mean, um, Australia, oh, sorry, I was just going to say, I mean, Australia yeah. and Russia now are the only two OECD nations without actual plans to address emissions, have emission standards or address dirty fuels. So, I mean, what can we do at a state level now that the federal government's put off looking at emission standards? Well, the state government really needs to take up, uh, take up the fight. And we've seen in California that that state mandates in that state actually led the nation. And because vehicle sales were predominantly, uh, you know, if you, if you can't sell in California, you can't sell in the United States. So it meant that it actually dragged the country in the right direction. And that's what New South Wales should be doing, looking at vehicle emission standards. And if New South Wales mandated a particular standard, every other, all the vehicle uh, manufacturers would have to comply and it would actually, you know, lift all the states. So I know that in the ACT, they're doing some good work there. And in New South Wales, the EPA has produced this and we're hopeful and we'll be working with the new environment minister, the government, even though it's a re-elected government, has a new minister only since March this year. We're hoping we can make some good progress on those emissions issues. In my community, we've got, you know, um, sea-based emissions from cruise ship, um, uh, cruise ship vessels. You know, there's obviously, that's obviously another big issue apart from land-based pollution. There's um, you know, ocean ocean pollution from liners and, and merchant shipping. So there's a lot to do, and we're quite far behind. And I mean, on that, uh, has has the government or has Labor uh, committed to actually changing that and and giving power to the ships from the shore, or is that not something that's happening yet? No, it's not happening yet. Obviously, our standards. Well, the irony is that these vessels that are docking in Sydney would be unable to dock in North America and in most of Europe because the vehicle emissions, the, the, the emission standards are so much better. Uh, and we are stuck really in the dark ages here. But it's no surprise. I mean, New South Wales has been dominated by, uh, you know, industry, uh, industry kind of demands. And they have always argued that, um, you know, it's a cost to use a higher quality fuel rather than a bunker fuel. It's a cost to put EV into buildings. So the voice of industry, whether it's developers or you know the the the, the seafaring vessel uh, owners, has always been loudest. Whereas calls for good quality air standards, calls for you know recognizing future trends in terms of electric vehicles, have always fallen on deaf ears. But you know it's clear that um, it's coming, and we see with better quality vehicles and with lower quality uh, lower price for electric, um, you know the market. And, you know, the first um, wave of people using electric vehicles has really started and it's only going to intensify. I guess also on, on renewables, while we're talking about that in targets, um, New South Wales doesn't have a renewables target yet, does it? A 2030 renewables target like other states? So what, what can New South Wales do to catch up to other states and move away from coal? Well, you know, one of the great problems, as you know, is that coal is um, and supporters of fossil fuels have a very loud voice in politics in New South Wales. And changing these laws is a very simple, it's a balance of forces, you know, who's on one side and who's on the other side, and who can turn the government to make a decision. Uh, you know, there has been some talk with the new uh, Minister for Energy and Environment that New South Wales might go it alone on some targets. Um, obviously, it causes some consternation with their colleagues in the federal government. But, you know, I think anyone with even a scintilla of understanding of the climate issue knows that a state like New South Wales has to act and act seriously. Yeah. And even those who have been using the issue of climate change as a political football realise that, you know, it's not sustainable 
to be able to argue that we don't have these types of targets. I mean, industry is calling out for it. I mean, it's got to the stage now where uh, it's, I believe that we'll see some, um, some positive initiatives from this government in the next 12 months. I mean, they, they realise it's not possible to sustain that position any longer. I mean, it was politically useful for the coalition federally to attack everyone on climate and link that to increased costs for electricity, but it's just not sustainable now, especially in a state context where it's pretty clear that that link is just not realistically able to be made. And I mean, I don't want to get too political on the podcast, but I mean, it's kind of incongruous that, you know, the, the LNP, the National Party, represents um, a lot of uh, Australians who are probably struggling the most in terms of regional areas and, and farmers and things like that. And, and yet they still won't acknowledge that climate change is an issue facing their constituents. What's remarkable about it is the highest take up of PV isn't in the inner west. It's in far western New South Wales. It's in rural regional right, areas right. where it's actually, if you look at the list of uh, in my electorate, I'm, I'm one of the lowest in New South Wales for the take-up of PV. People have got small houses, they're often shaded. You know, you look at uh, its national party and country seats where those people are saying, hey, this is, I can get electricity so cheaper with a fantastic re- return on investment. But we know that the national party and the Liberal Party in particular, there's a lot of very powerful interest in agribusiness, in fossil fuel production, who are really huge donors, very influential people that can really help drive their policy. But, you know, what the wonderful thing about where we're at with EV and with renewables is it's cheaper than coal. And that we've now got to the stage where the market has sent a really clear message. Business people will not invest in coal-fired power now. And people in the future will look at a diesel vehicle or a traditional internal combustion engine, and they'll look at an electric vehicle and say, they're more talky, they're faster, they run better, they run smoother, they're cheaper. And that is what um, governments are holding back now by not you know, encouraging that transition. And there are a number of people now who obviously with their own solar, their own batteries and an electric vehicle, I mean, they're self-sufficient. They can charge from the sun and they don't pay a cent to uh, oil companies. And that independence is very attractive for a lot of people. And that's one of the things that government needs to address. That will only increase. And as I mentioned earlier, the more people that leave the grid, the fewer people that the cost to maintain the grid falls on. So if we predict in the future, say 30% of people leave the grid, that means that you know 70% of the people have to pay 100% of the costs. And so who are the people least likely to leave the grid? They're people generally on lower incomes, they might be in social housing, um, you know, they're still paying electricity bills. So you know, we have to look at how we can transition our grid and how we change the way electricity works to make sure that we do it in a way that recognizes that the whole way the network was put together a hundred years ago is changing. Uh, you know, to have one massive coal-fired power station that powers the whole city is a very different arrangement than the dispersed power generation that the future will look like. And EV is a really important part of that. I guess privatisation um, of electricity in New South Wales is a bit controversial. Um, but you, the Greens, have a have a plan, don't they, for a publicly owned uh, energy company to manage um, renewables? Is that right? That's right. We came out with our proposal around this. And interestingly enough, in the run-up to the election, just a few months before the election, Labor came out with a very similar plan. One of the great problems about the privatisation of the electricity network, and this is distribution poles and wires, is it's very hard to be able to help manage that transition. One of the issues, of course, is if you're running the poles and wires network, that's your business. Um, And that business is a 100-year-old business, a 100-year-old monopoly business. Now, 
if you're looking at the future with dispersed power generation, then you know that business is not interested in seeing that happen. So they'll be doing everything they can to try and maintain the current system. So our view is that we need to have a publicly owned generator and distributor, in particular in the renewable space, because we know now that it's a profitable business. We know now that we need to be leveraging, as federally ARENA has been doing, the Australian Renewable Energy Group, which is a federal government agency, we can help leverage the existing system and really drive the renewable future in a way that, you know, not only gives people good value for money, but also includes people who may not be able to afford the cost. So, for example, how we provide renewable energy for public and social housing residents to make sure that they're included in a renewable energy future and how we actually promote that system in stratas and in other ways throughout the state. So instead of subsidising the big power players, you actually see government's role in um, funding uh, the uh, rollout of renewables for those who perhaps can't afford it. That's right. And the thing is, let's not forget that the, the, the development of elect- the electricity system was always a public system. It was seen as a monopoly provider and critical for the development of the nation. And now we have the same situation where we have this big transition and that transition needs to be done in a planned and orderly way. And it needs to be done that recognises grid stability and so on. And having a whole stack of private retailers uh, and a few big you know, generators, basically monopoly generators, isn't giving the network the support that it needs. And so we believe that a publicly owned system that can actually you know, move the system into that future in a staged and methodical and systematic way will help the private operators that are currently in the market, but will also deliver more for the community. And I think, I mean, solar rebates are something that's sort of slowly starting to take off uh, around Australia. Um, But do you think there should be any uh, sort of support for hybrid or electric vehicle buyers? Should there be state concessions on stamp duty or registration to incentivise the uptake of EVs? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. There's no doubt that the government can do a lot to recognise the positive impact of these vehicles. Um, there is a question, of course, with fuel excise that, you know, federally they're worried that if everyone moves to electric vehicles, you know, those billions and billions of dollars of revenue won't be coming. Uh, but that's something the federal government needs to grapple with, working with state governments. In our mind, the negative externalities, you know, the, the negative impact of the internal combustion engine uh, for all of its um, uh, impacts needs to be recognised. And of course, alternatively, the benefits of electricity. So all the issues that you raised about car registration, about uh, providing incentives for these vehicles, you know, I think are very important that we strongly support. We've got a package of measures that we've proposed in the election about what the government should be doing to promote electric. That is, of course, investing in charging, which is really critical, uh, but also, you know, abolishing a whole lot of fees and charges on electric vehicles to try and reduce the price. And the price is coming down but to try to encourage first the adopters, if you like, to take it on in a more robust way. So we can start to reduce that pollution. Every vehicle that's on that road, we're reducing pollution uh, at road level, and we want to continue to do that. And especially uh, commercial vehicles and uh, mass transit, that's one way to really reduce uh, particulate matter, isn't it? That's right. And if you look at the most polluting vehicles when it comes to particulate matter is diesel, and diesel buses are major culprits. Um, You know, hundreds and hundreds of buses are running in the inner west and um, the impact is quite significant. Even just uh, that alone would make a strong difference. And we can see in the ACT, they're looking at rolling out that whole electric bus network. Um, And here in New South Wales, being the biggest bus users in the inner west, 
there's a great opportunity for us to do that in the next few years. And when our fleet rolls over, obviously they don't just kind of you know roll over every year, but as the fleet rolls over, uh, we should be investing purely in those electric buses. And it's a competitive market. It's not just BYD, other, uh, other players are in the market. And in fact, there's a new, uh, another bus that um, the Leichhardt Depot would be looking at just to trial, which is not a BYD bus. So there's a lot of competition in that space and I welcome that. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, I guess also on pollution, um, you mentioned the West Connects earlier in our conversation and it's obviously going ahead. They're, they're digging, they're realigning roads, they're knocking down trees. Um, the, the tunnels are going to cause a lot of pollution as well. There's a big concentration of pollutants and particulate matter um, and they're going to put these vent stacks um, through residential areas. What, I mean, what can be done in terms of managing the pollution that's coming out of these tunnels from this, this project? Well, we know that the transition to electric will take quite some time. Yeah. So the opportunity to have zero emission vehicles in those tunnels is quite some time away. We, are, we oppose the project. We think that will induce more traffic in the long run. It will actually deliver zero net results, apart from shifting people out of public transport. Um, but what that should happen at a minimum is filtration. And we know around the world, in, whether it's in Spain or in Japan, filtration of uh, motorway exhausts, uh, because these um, exhaust stacks take the unfiltered exhaust from large areas, you know, several kilometres of road, and emit them in one location, that they should be filtered. And we think they should be using Bell's world's best practice. If they are going to build these things, they should be filtering the stacks especially because, you know, several of these stacks are within like a few hundred metres of schools where young kids are, where we know developing lungs shouldn't have the concentrated pollution of a motorway dumped on them. So the government's resisting that at the moment. It's obviously expensive to do that uh, because you have to run these um, filters 24-7, but we still think it's very important and we're continuing to press the government to do uh, what we believe in good conscience the government should do in, uh, by their own accord. Yeah, I think they cite a number of uh, studies uh, from overseas saying that um, filtration doesn't necessarily um, provide any added benefit and that uh, the, the concentration of pollutants isn't such that it's a, a major issue. But I think when you can actually see what's in the tunnels when you drive through the, through the smoke haze, um, it is concerning for residents, isn't it? Well, it is. And we believe in the precautionary principle. Even if everything they say is right, let's add the additional precaution of doing filtration. I mean, these things costing, you know, just below $20 billion, um, investing, and that's with a B, $20 billion, investing with uh, investing in um, uh, pollution filtration uh, should be something which a government in good conscience should do. But the important thing to remember that the main argument they rely on uh, is not about the, uh, the emissions from the stacks, but the height. Because they're building them around 35 metres, they say that prevailing winds means that the pollution is dispersed. So, you know, they admit that, well, you know, the pollution in, in, that comes from these um, stacks is, is quite concentrated, but we're building it high enough so that it will get uh, dispersed. But of course, that might be the case on some days, but on other days, it won't be dispersed and uh, it will come, you know, uh, directly to people, whether it's in the school or the childcare centre or in the local community. So we don't think it's good enough and the atmosphere should not be used as a free garbage dump for all of this pollution. As an inner west resident myself, um, my wife and I were drawn to the area because of you know the character of the buildings, the green spaces, the sense of community. But Sydney's obviously growing at a huge rate. I think about a hundred thousand uh, people per year. How do you think 
the inner west can successfully build and accommodate um, for all these new residents and sort of maintain the character of the area at the same time and uh, move people around effectively. Well, you know, it's interesting you talk about the pattern of development, which is a walkable pattern of development with a lot of green space. It didn't happen by accident. I mean, that's the thing that I think people don't understand. They have 12 years on Leichhardt Council, and every week and every month, we fought about every park, every footpath, every, you know, street tree, uh, everything is contested. And uh, the fact that the pattern of development that we see now exists is because of community action, because people in this part of the world have fought very hard to protect it. Um, uh, yet we see in other areas where there's different councils and different kind of political makeups um, that things are very different. One of the things that is very important is density. Um, people often think we Greens are against density. In fact, we're great fans of density. And one of the big shames is if you go out to areas of Southwest and Western Sydney, you drive for mile after mile after mile of 800, 1200 square meter blocks with not a tree in sight, built boundary to boundary, full of air conditioning. And that's exactly the pattern of development that we don't need, where people are locked into cars and they have to drive to the local shopping center in order to actually see or meet other people. Uh, we're big supporters, uh, interestingly, of the pattern of development we see around us in the inner west, which is a denser pattern of development, which with, you know, 200 square meters is a big block in the inner west. Yes. <laughs> um, that type, and if you look to western and southwestern Sydney, you could fit four houses where they have one. So we can increase, multiply by four, the total amount of new development in that area, just with the pattern of development, we see here where the people have got houses and little backyards and you have parks and you have corner shops. And the reason why we promote that is because it's so successful. It's a successful pattern of development that gives density, which gives local community and lets high street shops work. And it also means you can have shopping centers, which are still viable because the density of development is there. So, you know, we support that. We also think that, you know, the type of multi-unit development that we see around can work. And, I know myself when I was on the council, I probably approved a thousand development applications for a, a lot of uh, new uh, dwellings, which actually met and exceeded the state government targets that were imposed on councils. But it has to be designed right. And design is so important. And you'll see, you've just got to places in Parramatta, along Canterbury Road and places. You've got you know mile after mile after mile of like garbage bins, driveways, fire services, garbage bin driveways. They're not activating the streets. Right. And there's one there's of no the green things... interface between the building and the street, uh, is there? No, there's not only no interface, but there's no activation. So you have narrow footpaths without a street tree or a grass verge. And then you have like, you know, a driveway, garbage bins, vents. There's, it's no type of people, pedestrian, friendly, human scale development. And it doesn't matter if the building's four stories or eight stories. If it doesn't interrelate with the street, it doesn't work. And that's one of the great failings. It's obviously great for the developer who has, you know, builds right up to, right up to the footpath who doesn't have to have a setback. Um, it's great for them if you put all the garbage bins on the street because they're taking public space rather than the private space where they can build more buildings. But that really is the critical issue about the future of our city. It's not just about density. It's about how it relates to the street and having good quality, environmentally friendly design. Because I suppose that kind of design also then encourages people to drive into their secure car parks uh, and then drive straight out again rather than, you know, walking uh, on the footpath or waiting outside for a bus or that sort of thing. It's just not conducive to, um, to any other form of transport rather, other than a car. That's right. And that's one of the great forms of kind of 
um, cognitive dissonance, if you like, mm. is people know they love streets where they can know their neighbor, they walk around, they have the local shop. People love that. That's why, you know, the demand for, you know, eastern suburbs, inner city, that kind of older pattern of development is so high. But at the same time, from the individual developer's perspective, um, it's not as profitable. So it leads to perverse outcomes where, you know, having one or two properties where there's a driveway is fine. But when the whole street is just driveway, 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 it becomes alien to pedestrians and people get in a car to go somewhere rather enjoy their local community, which is what we know people like to do. Jamie, thanks again for your time today. Uh, it's been really great having you on the podcast. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me. It's been a real pleasure. And that concludes the interview with Greens Member of Parliament, Jamie Parker. I think Jamie clearly demonstrates a lot of knowledge and passion when it comes to policies around clean and sustainable transport. Uh, if you have any comments or questions on today's show, join the conversation on Facebook or Twitter or shoot me an email to theevbrief at gmail.com and I can forward any follow-up questions or comments to Jamie. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. And if you're able to support EV Brief, jump on over to patreon.com slash evbriefpodcast. My name is Jonathan. Thanks so much for listening to EV Brief, and I hope you have a great week.